All right, how's it going, everyone? Uh, welcome to this week's roundtable. As you can see this week, I am without Jeff Dodge. He is teaching, um, I think, a PhD seminar down in Kansas City at Midwestern. And so, um, yeah, he's, Jeff is always noticeably absent. Um, we, had a, we had a network day yesterday um, with the Salt Network, and he was not here. We felt it. So we missed Jeff this week, but I've got a, a special guest um, planned for you. So I'm excited to, to share that with you. But um, the context is, so last week um, I was at my, went to my, my uncle passed away, um, uncle Billy Arendt. And uh, he, um, his uh, memorial service um, and funeral were, were last week. So I was up in Minneapolis. And uh, one of the things I was hanging out with my cousin and uh, he has some of my grandpa's old World War II stuff that he brought back from the war. Here's a picture of me at my cousin's house wearing the German helmet, carrying the, the German rifle. Um, if you're listening on the podcast, sorry, um, it's me wearing a German helmet, holding a rifle with a bayonet on it. And um, yeah, he's got some of, some of grandpa's uh, World War II stuff. And I, I love that uh, kind of just being there, uh, there was a lot of nostalgia and memories um, about my uncle, also about my grandfather. And I want to share something. So one of the things about my grandpa, Bill Arendt, um, is that he loved the Lord. He loved to share Jesus with everybody that, that he saw. Uh, he would often, uh, I remember as a little kid, we'd be going to these thrift stores and it would take forever to get out of there because he'd be sharing the gospel with somebody or um, he always, you know, he'd go to the longest grocery line just so he would have more time to share Jesus with the person in front of him. Um, and so it's it pretty funny. But, but one of the things, um, if you met my grandpa Bill, he would often um, quote something to you. He's always memorizing something. And one of the things that I can almost quote this from memory, just from all the times that I heard my grandpa share this with people, and it's, it's today's guest. Um, it's, not, it, it's not my grandpa Bill, but it's uh, a person that he was shaped by and that I've also been shaped by. Uh, his name's A.W. Tozer. And here's his book, The Pursuit of God. Um, A.W. Tozer, a pastor, you know, back in the 50s um, and 60s. I, he would always quote this, Grandpa Bill would quote this from A.W. Tozer. This is his book, The Next Chapter After the Last. He says, the testimony of a, the true follower of Christ might well be something like this. The world's pleasures and the world's treasures henceforth have no appeal for me. I reckon myself crucified to the world and the world crucified to me. But the multitudes that were so dear to Christ shall not be less dear to me. If I cannot prevent their moral suicide, I shall at least baptize them with my human tears. I want no spiritual, I want no blessing that I cannot share. I seek no spirituality that I must win at the cost of forgetting that men and women are lost and without hope. If in spite of all I can do, they will sin against light and bring upon themselves the displeasure of a holy God, then I must not let them go their sad way unwept. I scorn a happiness that I must purchase with ignorance. I reject a heaven that I must enter by shutting my eyes to the sufferings of my fellow men. I choose a broken heart rather than any happiness that ignores the tragedy of human life and human death. Though I, 
through the grace of God in Christ, no longer lie under Adam's sin, I would still feel a bond of compassion for all of Adam's tragic race. And I am determined that I shall go down to the grave or up into God's heaven, mourning for the lost and the perishing. And thus and thus will I do as God enables me. Amen. Again, that was an excerpt from the next chapter after the last, page 36. And so today on the roundtable, I want to spend some time talking or listening to A.W. Tozer because I think that what we need um, during these times is we need voices from different decades, um, different centuries. Uh, we need to be around people. And, and uh, my cousin got some of my grandpa's World War II stuff, and I, I envy him for that. But one of the treasures that I got from my grandpa is this book, The Pursuit of God. And I first read this in high school, and I've read it many times since. Um, and this is my grandpa's book. You can see it's kind of torn in half. The pages are all um, kind of yellow brown here from being old. And it's got my grandpa's name there, Bill Arendt. And uh, I adopted it as my own here. So um, I'm going to read the intro, the introduction and the first chapter uh, for our time together today. So I hope you will enjoy this and be challenged by this voice. We need to, um, you know, turn down the vo voices of social media. We need to turn up God's voice and the voice of saints that have gone before. And so this is uh, the preface in chapter one of The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. In this hour of all but universal darkness, one cheering gleam appears. Within the fold of conservative Christianity, there are to be found increasing numbers of persons whose religious lives are marked by a growing hunger after God himself. They are eager for spiritual realities and will not be put off with words, nor will they be content with correction, with correct, quote, interpretations of truth. They are a thirst for God, and they will not be satisfied till they have drunk deep of the fountain of living water. This is the only real harbinger of revival, which I have been able to detect anywhere on the religious horizon. It may be the cloud, it may be the cloud the size of a man's hand for which a few saints here and there have been looking. It can result in a resurrection of life for many souls and a recapture of that radiant wonder which should accompany faith in Christ, that wonder which has all but fled the church of God in our day. But this hunger must be recognized by our religious leaders. Current evangelicalism has, to change the figure, laid the altar and divided the sacrifice into parts, but now seems satisfied to count the stones and rearrange the pieces with never a care that there is not a sign of fire upon the top of lofty caramel. But God be thanked that there are a few who care. They are those who, while they love the altar and delight in the sacrifice, are yet unable to reconcile themselves to the continued absence of fire. They desire God above all. They are athirst to taste for themselves the piercing sweetness of the love of Christ about whom all the holy prophets did write and the psalmist did sing. There is today no lack of Bible teachers to set forth correctly the principles of the doctrines of Christ, but too many of these seem satisfied to teach the fundamentals of the faith year after year, 
strangely unaware that there is in their ministry no manifest presence, nor anything unusual in their personal lives. They minister constantly to believers who feel within their breasts a longing which their teaching simply does not satisfy. I trust I speak in charity, but the lack in our pulpits is real. Milton's terrible sentence applies to our day as accurately as it did to his. Quote, the hungry sheep look up and are not fed. It is a solemn thing and no small scandal in the kingdom to see God's children starving while actually seated at the Father's table. The truth of Wesley's words is established before our eyes. Quote, orthodoxy or right opinion is at best a very slender part of religion. Though right tempers cannot subsist without right opinions, yet right opinions may subsist without right tempers. There may be a right opinion of God without either love or one right temper toward him. Satan is proof of this, end quote. Thanks to our splendid Bible societies and to other effective agencies for the dissemination of the word, there are today many millions of people who hold, quote, right opinions, probably more than ever before in the history of the church. Yet I wonder if there was ever a time when true spiritual worship was at a lower ebb. To great sections of the church, the art of worship has been lost entirely, and in its place has come that strange and foreign thing called the program. This word has been borrowed from the stage and applied with sad wisdom to the type of public service which now passes for worship among us. Sound Bible exposition is an imperative must in the church of the living God. Without it, no church can be a New Testament church in any strict meaning of that term, but exposition may be carried on in such way as to leave the hearers devoid of any true spiritual nourishment, whatever. For it is not mere words that nourish the soul, but God himself. And unless and until the hearers find God in personal experience, they are not the better for having heard the truth. The Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God, that they may enter into him that they may delight in his presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself in the core and center of their hearts. This book is a modest attempt to aid God's hungry children so to find him. Nothing here is new except in the sense that it is a discovery which my own heart has made of spiritual realities most delightful and wonderful to me. Others before me have gone much farther into these holy mysteries than I have done. But if my fire is not large, it is yet real. And there may be those who can light their candle at its flame. A.W. Tozer, Chicago, Illinois, June 16th, 1948. Chapter one, following hard after God. My soul followeth hard after thee, thy right hand upholdeth me. Psalm 63, eight. Christian theology teaches the doctrine of prevenient grace, which briefly stated means this, that before a man can seek God, God must first have sought the man. Before a sinful man can think a right thought of God, there must have been a work of enlightenment done within him. Imperfect it may be, but a true work nonetheless, and the secret cause of all desiring and seeking and praying, which may follow. We pursue God because and only because he is first put an urge within us that spurs us to the pursuit. No man can come to me, said our Lord, except the Father which hath sent him. 
sent me draw him. And it is by this very prevenient drawing that God takes from us every vestige of credit for the act of coming. The impulse to pursue God originates with God, but the outworking of that impulse is our following hard after him, and all the time we are pursuing him, we are already in his hand. Thy right hand upholdeth me. In this divine upholding and human following, there is no contradiction. All is of God. For, as von Hugel teaches, God is always previous. In fact, in practice, however, that is where God's previous working meets man's present response. Man must pursue God. On our part, there must be positive reciprocation of this secret drawing of God is to eventuate in identifiable experience of the divine. In the warm language of personal feeling, this is stated in the 42nd Psalm, quote, as the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? This is a deep calling unto deep, and the longing heart will understand it. The doctrine of justification by faith, a biblical truth, and a blessed relief from the sterile legalism and unavailing self-effort, has in our time fallen into evil company and been interpreted by many in such manner as actually to bar men from the knowledge of God. The whole transaction of religious conversion has been made mechanical and spiritless. Faith may now be exercised without a jar to the moral life and without embarrassment to the Adamic ego. Christ may be received without creating any special love for him in the soul of the receiver. The man is, quote, saved, but he is not hungry nor thirsty after God. In fact, he is specifically taught to be satisfied and encouraged to be content with little. The modern scientist has lost God amid the wonders of his world. We Christians are in real danger of losing God amidst the wonders of his word. We have almost forgotten that God is a person and as such can be cultivated as any person can. It is inherent in personality to be able to know other personalities, but full knowledge of one personality by another cannot be achieved in one encounter. It is only after long and loving mental intercourse that the full possibilities of both can be explored. All social intercourse between human beings is a response of personality to personality, grading upward from the most casual brush between man and man to the fullest, most intimate communion of which the human soul is capable. Religion, so far as it is genuine, is in essence the response of created personalities to the creating personality, God. This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. God is a person, and in the deep of his mighty nature, he thinks, wills, enjoys, feels, loves, desires, and suffers as any other person may. In making himself known to us, he stays by the familiar pattern of personality. He communicates with us through the avenues of our minds, our wills, and our emotions. The continuous 
and unembarrassed interchange of love and thought between God and the soul of the redeemed man is the throbbing heart of New Testament religion. This intercourse between God and the soul is known to us in conscious personal awareness. It is personal, that is, it does not come through the body of believers as such, but is known to the individual and to the body through the individuals which compose it. And it is conscious, that is, it does not stay below the threshold of consciousness and work there unknown to the soul, as for instance, infant baptism is thought by some to do, but comes within the field of awareness where the man can know it as he knows any other fact of experience. You and I are in little, our sins accepted, what God is in large. Being made in his image, we have within us the capacity to know him. In our sins, we lack only the power. The moment the spirit has quickened us to life in regeneration, our whole being senses its kinship to God and leaps up in joyous recognition. That is the heavenly birth without which we cannot see the kingdom of God. It is, however, not an end, but an inception. For now begins the glorious pursuit, the heart's happy exploration of the infinite riches of the Godhead. That is where we begin, I say, but where we stop, no man has yet discovered. For there is in the awful and mysterious depths of the triune God, neither limit nor end. Shoreless ocean, who can sound thee? Thine own eternity is round thee, majesty divine. To have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. Scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religionist, but justified in happy experience by the children of the burning heart. St. Bernard stated this holy paradox in a musical quatrain that will be instantly understood by every worshiping soul. We tasted thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee, the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. Come near to holy men and women of the past, and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for him. They prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out. And when they had found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking. Moses used the fact that he knew God as an argument for knowing him better. Quote, now, therefore, I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight. And from there, he rose to make the daring request, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. God was frankly pleased by this display of ardor, and the next day called Moses into the mount, and there in solemn procession made all his glory pass before him. David's life was a torrent of spiritual desire, and his psalms ring with the cry of the seeker and the glad shout of the finder. Paul confessed the mainspring of his life to be his burning desire after Christ, that I may know him, was the goal of his heart, and to this he sacrificed everything 
yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, from, uh, from for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but refuse that I may win Christ. Hymnody is sweet with the longing after God, the God whom, while the singer seeks, he knows he has already found. Quote, his track I see and I'll pursue, sang our fathers only a short generation ago. But that song is heard no more in the great congregation. How tragic that we in this dark day have had our seeking done for us by our teachers. Everything is made to center upon the initial act of, quote, accepting Christ, a term incidentally, which is not found in the Bible. And we are not expected thereafter to crave any further revelation of God to our souls. We have been snared in the coils of a spurious logic, which insists that if we have found him, we need no more seek him. This is set before us as the last word in orthodoxy, and it is taken for granted that no Bible-taught Christian ever believed otherwise. Thus, the whole testimony of the worshiping, seeking, singing church on that subject is crisply set aside. The experiential heart theology of a grand army of fragrant saints is rejected in favor of a smug interpretation of scripture, which would certainly have sounded strange to an Augustine a Rutherford or a Brainerd. In the midst of this great chill, there are some. I rejoice to acknowledge who will not be content with shallow logic. They will admit the force of the argument and then turn away with tears to hunt some lonely place and pray, oh God, show me thy glory. They want to taste, to touch with their hearts, to see with their inner eyes the wonder that God is. I want deliberately to encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present low estate. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is a result of our lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. Too bad that with many of us, he waits so long, so very long, in vain. Every age has its own characteristics. Right now, we are in an age of religious complexity. The simplicity which is in Christ is rarely found among us. In its stead, our programs, methods, organizations, and a world of nervous activities which occupy time and attention that can never satisfy the longing of the heart. The shallowness of our inner experience, the hollowness of our worship, and that servile imitation of the world which marks our promotional methods all testify that we in this day know God only imperfectly and the peace of God scarcely at all. If we would find God amid all the religious externals, we must first determine to find him and then proceed in the way of simplicity. Now, as always, God discovers himself to babes and hides himself in thick darkness from the wise and the prudent. We must simplify our approach to him. We must strip down to essentials and they will be found to be blessedly few. We must put away all effort to impress and come with the guileless candor of childhood. 
If we can do this, without doubt, God will quickly respond. When religion has said its last word, there is little that we need other than God himself. The evil habit of seeking God and effectively prevents us from finding God in full revelation. In the end lies our great woe. If we omit the end, we shall soon find God. And in him, we shall find that for which we have all our lives been secretly longing. We need not fear that in seeking God, only we may narrow our lives or restrict the motions of our expanding hearts. The opposite is true. We can well afford to make God our all, to concentrate, to sacrifice the many for the one. The author of the quaint old English classic, The Cloud of Unknowing, teaches us how to do this. Lift up thine heart unto God with a meek stirring of love and mean himself and none of his goods. And there to look thee loath to think on aught but God himself, so that not work in thy wit, nor in thy will, but only God himself. This is the work of the soul that most pleaseth God. Again, he recommends that in prayer, we practice a further stripping down of everything, even our theology, quote, for it, is, for it suffices enough, a naked intent direct unto God without any other cause than himself, end quote. Yet underneath all this, all his thinking lay the broad foundation of New Testament truth. For he explains that by himself, he means, quote, God that made thee and bought thee and that graciously called thee to thy degree, end quote. And he is all for simplicity. If we would have religion, quote, lapped and folded in one word for that thou shouldst have better hold thereupon. Take thee but a little word of one syllable, for so it is better than of two, for even the shorter it is better. It accord with the work of the Spirit, and such a word is this word God, or this word love, end quote. When the Lord divided Canaan among the tribes of Le Israel, Levi received no share of the land. God said to him simply, I am thy part in thine inheritance, and by those words made him richer than all his brethren, richer than all the kings and rajas who have ever lived in the world. And there is a spiritual principle here, a principle still valid for every priest of the Most High God. The man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him, or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. Or if he, if he must see them go, one after one, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss. For having the source of all things, he has in one all satisfaction, all pleasure, all delight. Whatever he may lose, he has actually lost nothing. For he now has it all in one, and he has it purely legitimately, and forever. O oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. O oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee.
I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, that so I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy, a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow thee up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter two is titled, The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing, which I'm not going to read, but it's one of the coolest chapter titles and uh, a reason for you to keep reading A.W. Tozer's book, The Pursuit of God. Well, it was great having Tozer on and you can hear some of the language is, is a little bit harder to follow, but, but um, if you, it's, it's one of those um, books that it's hard to speed read it because there's so much to just almost meditate on. It almost feels like God talking to himself or something like that. Some, some uh, saint from the past stepping out and just speaking, um, uh, speaking out of the overflow uh, of a heart that knows God. So uh, hopefully you enjoyed that. Um, and maybe next week we'll get Jeff Dodge back and, uh, have another conversation. Um, I'm sure it'll be fascinating. So, well, thanks for joining us this week on the round table and we will see you next time. Have a great week.